BMI Online, JBA here, and welcome to another episode of Diversity and Mentorship in Investing, a limited series where we chat with some incredible angels and VC investors about diversity in investing. Are you looking to start or grow your startup but feel like you can't get to that next level? Well, DMI listeners, we have several private communities and a startup incubator specifically geared for you. Visit VentureSeed.com forward slash incubator to apply and join the growing number of funded startup businesses. Incubators are one of the best ways to get honest and direct feedback to strengthen the possibility to get funding. So apply now as there are a limited number of spots available. VentureSeed.com. Now, let's get ready to chat with our featured guest, Maya Gun Bishara. Maya, are you ready to have a conversation about diversity and mentorship in investing? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Jeremy. Thrilled to be here. Awesome. So Maya Gon is an early stage purpose-driven investor focused on aspects of health that are especially stigmatized, mental health, women's health, sexual health, and addiction. She is an active angel investor with a portfolio of 30 companies where she invests directly as a scout for Sokoa and is a principal at Bridge Builders Collaborative, an investment vehicle focused on mental health. She sits on the board of various nonprofits and is passionate about advancing refugee economic empowerment. She is Lebanese slash Brazilian originally and grew up in France and Japan and is based in London. So Maya, let's take a step back, fill in some gaps about what you made you the woman you are today and growing up. Mm, that's a great question. Thank you, Jeremy. Yeah, I think that you know, I have always from the very, very earliest days that I can remember been really passionate about impact and making a difference. And I think part of that was growing up in very different cultures and experiencing very different and witnessing, I should say, very different, you know, challenges in different communities and different systems. And I think that growing up in a place like Japan, for example, where I was the um, racial minority, I think may and cultural minority fostered at a very early age, this kind of um, curiosity and this openness and this kind of multicultural DNA that I have and a desire to really give back and to really have a positive impact in situations and in systems that are really broken and they're not serving everybody equitably. And so ever since your early age, just super passionate about impact, tried to kind of make a difference in whatever ways I could, you know, a lot of volunteering and a lot of charitable work. But as I went to college, I started to really try to ask myself like, okay, how do I translate that into a professional career? And I think that for a long time, up until quite recently, like the intersection of profit and purpose didn't really exist at scale. You know, I would argue, I feel like if you wanted to go pursue purpose, it was very much about, okay, then go to the nonprofit world or maybe, you know, go to the profit world and then pursue purpose in a charitable capacity much later in your career. I didn't really see a lot of thriving impact businesses, right? Like real scalable social enterprises, companies with a mission. And so I told myself, okay, let me build out kind of a generalist background and career first. And then as I get clear and clearer about the kind of impact I want to have, start to really focus there and hope that the generalist skills I will have collected will enable me to have the impact that I seek. So I studied industrial engineering in college. I was a management consultant for several years at the beginning of my career, then helped um, scale a tech philanthropy, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, for about five years out in California. 
And it wasn't until 2020 that I really had that aha moment of realizing the kind of impact that I wanted to have. And mental health in particular has been a really big part of my life, of my lived experience, and was honestly so present in my life that I somehow missed it as something, you know, I could apply my career to. It was just such a, such an ever present force that I hadn't really thought about how I could have an impact to it at a systems level. And so when 2020 rolled around and it felt like suddenly, you know, mental health was on top of the dialogue, there are so many more people talking about it, interesting companies emerging, more capital at the table willing to fund um, tech-driven solutions or innovative solutions. I felt like, you know what, this is going to be a paradigm-shifting decade or two in mental health, and I want to be a part of it. So I left my job, I left San Francisco, and I moved to London to try to figure out how I could be useful to the mental health space. And that very kind of unexpectedly led me into angel investing and now early-stage investing more broadly. That's interesting. Interesting journey. And we'll definitely dive in and talk more about that specifically with mental health and some of the uh, parts that you just mentioned in um, your your journey. Quick question. As someone who's relearning Japanese for the second time, what was oh, it wow, like <laughs> growing up? Do you, do you actually speak? Uh, or you A know, tiny bit. Okay. I can, interestingly, I can read hiragana and katakana, so two mm-hmm. of the alphabets that I'm sure you're very familiar with. Absolutely. Um, as you know, like phonetically and reading it, you can actually get by pretty well, but my conversation skills definitely need some brushing up so we'll have to practice absolutely it's like the kanji as well you know that's that's the hardest thing that people have uh uh, and so yeah we'll get to that later but that's awesome so just to go back to what you mentioned about some of the things you were talking about the economic empowerment for refugees could Mm. you speak a little bit more about that yeah absolutely it's such a good question i think that for me this is a very personal topic to me being part lebanese our part of the world in the middle east has been in constant change, constant migration. Lebanon in particular has experienced many, many wars and many economic, social, political challenges over the years, over the decades, I should say. And so when I look at a lot of the refugee crises still happening in the Middle East, and you know, I think they've become even more acute since 2011 and everything happened in Syria, I feel very, very close to that cause. I feel like they're my extended family. I feel very connected to the region and I feel like it's my cause and I want to do everything I can to support it. So for me, I believe migration and immigration is critical to a thriving global world, functioning economy, thriving social system for us to really continue to evolve as a collective. And I makes me really sad that so many countries, I think, don't see it that way, especially in recent years. And refugees are largely unwelcomed, right, in new communities. And they're extremely stigmatized against. In Lebanon, for example, if you're a Syrian refugee, it's extremely hard to enter the, edu- the public education system. And so what I'm trying to do is, you know, in a nonprofit capacity, because I think that given the situation that nonprofits probably have the most impactful role to play right now, trying to make sure that I'm personally focused on two things. Number one, supporting refugee children with economic uh, or educational opportunities. So really making sure they have access to quality education so that they have a fair shot, right, at reaching their potential. And the second is supporting um, thriving entrepreneurs who have a refugee background. So a lot of refugees in the region actually don't have, are not able to get kind of official citizenship, right, or even residency in their new location. And so as a result, it's really hard to do things like set up businesses, get business license, raise funding. There are a lot of barriers. And so I'm really interested in kind of removing those barriers because as you know, as we know from many other cases, including the US, immigrants are incredibly, incredibly, um, you know, I think 
contributing to the economy in an amazing way. They're incredible business leaders. They're incredibly innovative. They're very forward thinking. I mean, if you think about like Apple as a starting point, right? With Steve Jobs, um, the head of Uber today. So I think that I'm really interested in helping unlock so much potential that is really being limited by a lot of stigmatization and a lot of um, systemic barriers to, to thriving and to economic access. Yeah, absolutely. And we speak about communities and investing in communities often at Venture Seed. And thank you for sharing that because it definitely has an impact. And I think as a, a seed stage investor or an angel investor, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure it has, you know, very personal um, uh, relationship for you when you're talking about those different communities around the world and being able to invest outside of the normal, you know, mm-hmm. massive VC venture capital. So, so thanks for that. You speak about mental health a lot. And I think during COVID, there was a tremendous shift for people in their personal and professional lives, specifically for, I guess, female entrepreneurs. What were your observations during that time and what overall impact did that have on you and maybe the communities you support? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. I think that in, you know, in 20, since 2020, let's say, I think there's a lot to be really excited about in terms of the trends we saw with female entrepreneurs. We're seeing more women than ever starting businesses. I think what I'd what I'd read is that in 2021, the percentage of women who started new businesses in the US was 49%, whereas it went up from 28% in 2019. So I think that to me, COVID was this like reckoning moment, right? It was this catalyst mm-hmm. for so many people to find their purpose or to gain the courage or the resources or the time and the spaciousness to figure out what do I actually want to do and how do I want to serve a bigger purpose? And so I think it inspired a lot of new business building for female founders. I think it also grew the pool of female investors. So I think that it's trending well, but I also want to be honest and we'll get into this uh, later, I hope, is that the the absolute numbers are still really low, right? We're talking about 3% of all uh, venture funding goes to female founded businesses, right? And whereas... 15% of businesses are female founded. So there's just still a lot of discrepancy in the system in absolute terms. Only 15% of investors are women or check writers, if you want to use the term more expansively. So I think there's, you know, there's a lot that still needs to be <laughs> improved in absolute terms. But from a trend standpoint, we are seeing there's a lot to be optimistic about as well. I think 2020 was really helpful in that way. I also think that at least speaking for the US, there has been much more of a reckoning, to be honest, about where there is a lot of implicit and explicit discrimination and racism in our systems on many levels. And I think that that raised a lot of these topics to um, the table. And I think it's much more top of mind, much more part of the conversation. And as a result, I think there's a higher level of individual and collective accountability around really contributing to the world that we think is fair, right? And leveling the playing field for everybody else. So I think that I've seen a couple of those shifts since, since 2020. Um, things have slowed down a little bit, Jeremy, because of the macroeconomic situation that we're in, right? As of the last mm-hmm. year or so. And I was reading this interesting article the other day talking about how, unfortunately, economic crises are used as scapegoats for discrimination mm-hmm. because it mm-hmm. causes people to be more risk averse, right? And to kind of just try to repeat patterns versus taking a bet, let's say, on a new uh, founder or a new type of founder or a new type of company. And I think, unfortunately, female founders in particular and or minority founders as well are going to suffer during this time as a result of that dynamic, right? And as a result of that kind of permission that at least VCs are giving themselves to not be looking outside of their networks for the next big bet or really betting on the innovation. 
Correct. And in one of my previous podcasts, you know, diversity and mentorship in technology, I spoke mostly about bringing different voices to the corporate boardroom. You know, mm-hmm. it starts from the top. And I think on the investing side and in the venture capital ecosystem, we both probably have not seen a lot of investors, specifically female like yourself at the, you know, the check writing decision making table. And we definitely have a long way to go. And, and, you know, maybe we'll talk about some, some ways we can, you know, what they, people that are doing the good thing and trying to move the, the needle ahead. But that's definitely an important, um, topic to, to hone in on. Mm. You speak about communities and investing communities, um, in general overall. How do you find, different countries for example you're in the uk you're in san francisco you know the us what do you find as an investor especially in this economic situation is it better over in you know london let's say the european union the us canada how are you finding it is it or is it the same throughout you know all parts of the world when it comes to um you know the the challenges there Mm, yeah as an angel investor correct as an angel investor yeah that's such a good question i would say to be honest i'm I find that in Europe, or at least speaking for London in the UK, I think my angel investing experience has been more more seamless, I'd say, and more productive and more rewarding for a couple Mm. of reasons. Number one, it's a smaller community. It's more intimate. People really know each other. And it feels less transactional in the sense that because it's smaller, because it is more intimate. People really, really take the time to get to know each other, right? These are relationships you're going to have for a long time. It's people you're going to see very often. And so it becomes much more relational. And I think that's really rewarding as an investor for many reasons. But I'd say one of them is that, you know, when you're doing early stage investing, like I am at pre-seed and seed, so much of it is a bet on the person and less so a bet on the idea, right? Which is likely going to pivot several times with the business model. And so being able to have that closer connection to these founders, both you know before you're making an investment decision, but then also after you make the decision and you're supporting your investment, I find it much more rewarding and energizing. So I think that's one thing. The second thing is founders... Uh, this is very anecdotal but from my own experience mm-hmm. as an early stage investor in both contexts. Again, because it's smaller founders... Um, are more open and interested in really that thought partnership that makes angel investing for me really rewarding, right? Being able to call me, even it's on a Saturday and just explaining a challenge and in a very vulnerable way, um, being open about it and giving me as an angel the opportunity to kind of think through how to navigate that or problem solve that. That's one of the things about angel investing I really love. And I feel that that happens more frequently here because it's a smaller community. And therefore, you know, founders are able to spend more time with angel investors as that makes sense. And I just want to clarify, I have some angel investments that probably don't even remember my name. So it's, it's not the mm. case across the portfolio. But I would say, generally speaking, that's another interesting dynamic. And I'd say that the, um, the third one, which I really, um, really valued as well is that overall, you know, it's interesting because being in the UK, the UK market itself is quite small in absolute terms, right? And so if you're a thriving company in the UK, you either want to scale to Europe or you want to go to the US. And so part of what has been rewarding for me investing out of the UK is helping companies with that transition, right? Right, With that bridge to the US. Whereas it's much more rare to find companies in the US that want to expand geographically. And I find geographic expansion really, really energizing given my background, you know, that kind of cross-cultural um, scaling, building a distributed team. And mm-hmm. so because that happens more frequently with companies coming out of the UK, I find the community to be really dynamic in that way. 
Interesting. And and I guess when an entrepreneur is approaching an angel investor as yourself, as opposed to like a VC fund to raise capital, mm-hmm. what's just let's say one piece of advice you could offer in, in that approach? Mm, that's a great question. That's a really good question. I think when entrepreneurs reach out to angel investor, I think being really clear about your story as an entrepreneur, why you're building this, how it is a segue from your personal journey, as well as clear about what you know and what you don't know. So I think just being explicit and clear, making the implicit explicit, even if it's on things that are irrelevant, like your personal journey, I see a lot of entrepreneurs skip over that. I think that is essential because again, a lot of angel investors investing at this really early stage are more interested in in your story as an entrepreneur, right? Because they're taking a bet on you and less interested in digging into the details of your financial model that is heavily assumptions-driven or extrapolating based on traction data from a very short period of time, right? It's going to be much more relational. And so I think bringing that to the table, of course, with the relevant deck and information is, uh, is a big piece of advice that I would give entrepreneurs. Very awesome. And so finally, what are some of the people or you know companies in the space that you admire um, that are changing the the way normal investment firms or investment rep- representation looks like from you know the higher level of the the partners or whatever the case may be in terms of the ecosystem from your from your view mm, that's a good question I think that yeah I think that what I'm seeing is you know I think it's great that there are big funds that are really starting to commit more intentionally to investing outside of their networks and investing in um, in diverse founders. I think that that commitment is really essential, Jeremy, because, and that accountability and being that public about it so that they can be held accountable is essential to really move the needle on where the data stands. And just to reiterate what I said, which is that 2% of all venture funding goes to female-founded companies. So I think that that's really important. Um, the second is where we're seeing funds really train their team on things like implicit bias because Mm -hmm. it sounds you know it sounds very very table stakes but we continue to see patterns and bias that continue to hold the system back i was reading an interesting study by harvard business review that said that if a female founder for example gets her first round of funding from a female partner doesn't doesn't need to be a female focused fund from a female partner she is less likely to raise from a male investor in her next round than if she originally raised from a male partner in her first round. And what the Harvard Business Review was saying in their study was that there's this perception that if a female investor invests in the first round, there's a lower level of rigor in that diligence process. And so what I'm, what I am, sharing this example for us to say that it's not just about increasing the number of female founders or increasing the number of female investors, but it's also about really training ourselves and our implicit bias so that we're making fair decisions about investment-worthy opportunities. Because I know for sure that when we are making a fair decision, right, and it's coming from a place of that neutrality and really just evaluating the business, you're not going to see a lot of the discrimination that we're currently seeing implied in the data. Correct. And I think there's a big empathetic leverage that a diverse investor can bring to the table that maybe perhaps your traditional investor cannot bring to the table, right? Mm -hmm. Because you have that shared cultural experience, you have that shared journey, those shared challenges that, you know, someone who maybe not from that uh, background or from that economic situation can't really relate as as much. So I think you're 100% on point in in that way. And we talk about that a lot internally at, at VentureSeed as well. 
Absolutely. And I think what I hear a lot of my female founders say is that the feedback they get from male investors is, well, this, this is too niche of a market. Maternal health is too niche or sexual health is too niche. When, of course, when women are 50%, right, of the population, it's mm-hmm. hard to understand that. And I think part of it is, to your point, Jeremy, is that if you don't have that resonance or that lived experience and you're not being conscious about that, right, and about where you're coming mm-hmm. from, I think that you see this risk aversion to investing in things like women's health, maternal health, sexual health, or even mental health that really is essential to growing those fields. Absolutely. And so what we're going to do is we'll stop there for now and we're going to move on to what we call the lightning round and we'll play the lightning round right after a word from, from our sponsor. Amazing. If you're an angel and crowdfunding investor and you know how tough it can be to find the right deal flow or syndicate to join, that's where ETF Angels comes into play. As an ETF fund, we pull the best pre-seed level startups together under one umbrella to better diversify your assets and investments. Whether you're a seasoned investor or making your first startup investment, do it with the confidence and support of diverse investors like yourself. Join the investors that have already made the switch by visiting ventureseed.com forward slash communities to learn more and apply. And we're back on DMI with Maya. Now, for those who are not familiar with how the lightning round is played, Here's what happens. We ask our guests two questions, of which one of those questions must be answered correctly in order to win the prize. Now, our guest will have 30 seconds to answer these questions. So, Maya, are you ready to play the lightning round? I am ready. Awesome. Okay, here we go. First question. Which country is the largest producer of coffee in the last 150 years? A, Colombia. B, Brazil. C, Indonesia. Brazil. Question two. French was the official language of England for about 300 years. True or false? Oh, goodness. <laughs> I'm going to go with true because that's counterintuitive. <laughs> yes. Cool. Congrats. You got both, you got both questions right. So really uh, oh, amazing. And it's okay. interesting because, you know, <laughs> you think Columbia coffee, you know, you're thinking, you're thinking the biggest export was actually Brazil. So very cool. And, uh, we'll, uh, talk about the prizes and whatnot right after we have a final word from our sponsors. Awesome. Are you an entrepreneur who's trying to grow your business or an investor who wants to better understand the economies of a startup? Well, DMI listeners, subscribe to our VC Opened newsletter where you'll receive some of the best advice on raising capital for your startup all for free. There's no commitment. So go to vcopened.ventureseed.com. That's vcopened.ventureseed.com. And we're back and you've been hanging out with Maya. So Maya, I want to thank you again for coming on the show, being part of this program and providing some really incredible insights from your journey. So whenever you're ready, I want to end today on DMI with a parting piece of guidance you can provide to our listeners, the best way we can connect with you, and then we'll say sayonara. Mm, Thank you so much. I would say we, my best piece of advice right now is that we, each of us has a responsibility to play in DMI and we all need to be part of the solution. And so my piece of advice would be to reflect on potentially one area that you want to grow on or maybe one bias that you're holding. If you don't know, you can ask people around you and to really commit to making strides in that over the next 30 days. And so that might be watching YouTube videos. It might be enrolling in a certificate or training, but really remembering that each one of us has a role to play in this space in terms of showing up as conscious investors and founders and business leaders in all capacities. And if you need any suggestions for resources, don't hesitate to reach out to me. 
Awesome. And so thanks again, Maya, for coming on the Thank show. Thank you so much. This was so much fun, Jeremy. Appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. And providing tremendous value to the listeners. And we'll definitely chat soon. Sounds great. Take care. Thanks.